Hello and welcome. I am Daniel Blessing, and today, along with Mary Frances Smith, Aubrey Alexander, and Mackenzie Moulton, we'd like to walk you through the history of the United States income tax. We'll first look at what income tax law looked like prior to the 16th Amendment. We'll then look at the events surrounding the passage of the 16th Amendment. We'll then take a look at what happened up until 1980. And then lastly, Mackenzie is going to tell us what happened from 1981 all the way to the present day. So to get started, we're going to start in the year 1812. You see, that's when Secretary of the Treasury Alexander J. Dallas made the first public proposal for an income tax. Now, not surprisingly, it was never implemented, but it did lay the groundwork for future legislative action. We saw that approximately 50 years later with the Revenue Act of 1861, which was used to help fund the Civil War. It levied a flat tax of 3% on income above $800. Now, Congress followed this up almost immediately with the Revenue Act of 1862, which imposed the first progressive federal income tax in our history. It was a 3% tax on income above $600, rising to 5% for incomes above the $10,000 mark. Now, while this income tax was repealed in 1872, it once again laid another important step towards the income tax. You see, states such as New York, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts, the more highly industrialized at the time, had greatly benefited from this tax, with some estimates of up to 60% of their state's total revenue coming from these acts. That's why political movements such as the Labor Reform Party, the Populist Party, and the Democratic Party all began to call for the graduated income tax. The Populist Party, in fact, added it to their platform in 1892, and Democratic Party, led by William Jennings Bryan, advocated for the tax law passed in 1894. Now, this law is known as the Wilson-Gorman Tariff Act. Now, yes, it was a tariff act, but it included a federal tax of 2% on incomes over $4,000. Now, to give you an idea, that's roughly $118,000 in U.S. 2019 dollars. This tax act was favored in the South, but was very much opposed in both the far West and the Northeastern states, where they went so far as to call it undemocratic and wrong in principle. Now, obviously, an act this controversial made its way to the Supreme Court, where in the landmark case, Pollock v. Farmers Loan and Trust Company, the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision, declared the income tax in this act unconstitutional. Chief Justice Melville Fuller's majority opinion held that the federal tax on income from this act was unconstitutional because it was not directly apportioned among the states, according to U.S. House representation, as required by the Constitution. Now, this court's ruling was successful, although unpopular, at preventing Congress from implementing the income tax for the next several decades. That began to change on June 16, 1909, when President William Howard Taft, in an address to the 61st Congress, proposed a 2% federal income tax on corporations. And from there, we move forward to the 16th Amendment, where Mary Frances will give us more information. Thank you. Okay, Amendment 16 states that the Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes on income from whatever source arrived without apportionment among the several states and without regard to any census or enumeration. This amendment was ratified in 1913. 
This ratification was the direct consequence of the court's 1895 decision in Pollock First Farmers Loan and Trust Company, holding unconstitutional Congress's attempt of the previous year to tax income uniformly throughout the United States. The tax code broaden the tax base and eliminate many tax shelters and preferences. Before the United States knew it, income tax was federal government's largest source of revenue. For example, income tax allows the government to keep an army, build roads and bridges, enforce laws, and carry out other important duties. The reason for the 16th Amendment was to attempt to solve the problem of the unequal distribution of taxes. This affects the United States today since Congress can allow um, to put laws on taxes in order as well. The 16th Amendment matters most because it has forever changed the character of the United States government. The government went from a modest central government that was dependent up on consumption taxes and tariffs on imports to the much more powerful modern government that fought two world wars and the Cold War revenue that came from now, Aubrey is after the 16th Amendment. Hey, I'm Aubrey. Um, following the 16th Amendment, in the United States, every taxpayer was taxed the same. There was no filing statuses. In 1914, World War I began, creating a new need for revenue. So in 1916, they passed the Revenue Act of 1916, making the smallest tax rate from 1% to 2% and raised the top rate to 15% on taxpayers with income of about $2 million. In 1917, when the United States officially joined the war, the War Revenue Act was passed. The act increased federal income tax rate while also lowering exemptions. The highest tax rate went from 15% to 67% on income above $2 million. The following year, in 1918, the tax rate increased again to 77%. Because war is expensive and they were in need of revenue, so during this time, separate taxes were introduced like a state and excess business profits. After the war began the Roaring Twenties, the government started rolling back some of the taxes from wartime, creating a huge boom, boom economically. Sales tax was also introduced around 1921, and the gift tax came about in 1924. Because people had no trouble spending money during this time and everyone pretty much lived lavishly, the tax rate dropped from 77% in 1918 to 25% in 1925 on taxpayers' income of about 500000 This is a radical change from wartime, but the crash of 1929 and the financial fallout caused the tax receipts revenues to fall from $6.6 billion in 1920 to $1.9 billion by 1932 which brought on the Great Depression. Property taxes had increased significantly in the decade prior to the Great Depression, but even if the tax rate remained a tax, burden increased because the market value of property fell relative to assessed values. The real burden also increased because personal income was falling relative to property tax bills. In 1932, Hoover passed the Federal Excise Tax on Gasoline and the Revenue Act of 1932. Roosevelt then stepped in and created the New Deal, hoping to pull the country out of depression. In 1932, the highest tax rate went from 25% to 63%, and then again in 1936, we see the highest tax rate go from 63% to 79%. This is the largest spike of federal income tax in U.S. history.
Roosevelt also introduced the Social Security Act in 1935 and first collected Social Security tax in January of 1937. The Revenue Act of 1938 was passed, which contained a corporate tax cut that Roosevelt actually objected, but it passed anyway. In 1940, the United States was preparing to enter the war and needed revenues to support its allies. This led to a more aggressive taxation. People with $500 incomes faced 23% tax, and the highest rate climbed 94% on taxpayers' income of $200,000 or more. That's insanely high. By 1945, the yearly tax receipts were over $43 billion, up from just $9 billion in 1941. World War II lasted from 1939 to 1945. Truman passed the Revenue Act of 1945 and rolled back $6 billion in taxes. The burden of Social Security and an expanded government following war times kept them from being able to go lower. In 1949, the filing statuses were introduced. Married filing separately becomes an option and married filing jointly is the applicable marginal rate. Tax rates are determined by the brackets of married filing married filing singly corresponding to one half of taxable income. The single and head of household were just the same as married filing separately, with the highest income rate being 91% on an income of 200000 or more. Throughout the 50s, the highest income tax rate stayed over 80%. During the war, there was this pay-as-you-go withholding system introduced as a wartime measure, but this carried on through the 50s. They attempted to lower the tax rate, but it was sporadic and confusing to most people. Finally, instead of rolling back the rates, they just rewrote the tax code, allowing for more deductions in some circumstances or lowered rates on some private foundation while raising rates on corporate foundations. They tried really hard in the 50s to find the loopholes and the fine print. In the 60s and 70s, there was a massive inflation and the government deficits continued to increase. During the 60s, married filing jointly, married filing separately, and head of household all became different filing statuses with different rates and incomes. Medicare was added to the expensive Social Security system. Inflation turned out to be a bigger problem than they first realized for taxpayers because taxes weren't indexed for the inflation. This meant that because of inflation, the value of their money was decreased, but they were still being required to pay more in taxes. In the 70s, the filing status single was introduced and Nixon was forced to pay back 400000 in taxes. With all the controversy surrounding Nixon, the president's tax evasion wasn't as big of an issue as it could have been. And now McKenzie is going to continue to talk about the tax changes from the 80s to present day. Thank you, Aubrey. In 1981, there was a tax act called the Economic Recovery Act that was signed by former President Ronald Reagan. This act contained the largest tax cut in U.S. history. It slashed the highest income tax bracket from 70% to 30%. Reagan put this tax act into place to strongly encourage innovation and entrepreneurship. This also created incentives for developing venture capital and higher investment in human capital through training and education. These cuts allowed for idea industries like software or financial services to grow rapidly. Within the past few years, we saw the information revolution take off with IBM's first personal computer. This also led to the rise of many other tech companies such as Cisco Systems, Intel, Microsoft, and Dell. Many argued that the Economic Recovery Act, Tax Act of 1981 led to the booming of the economy in the 1990s. On the other hand, some argued that this tax act only benefited the wealthy and actually created an even bigger gap between the rich and poor. Later down the line in 1997, Bill Clinton signed the Taxpayer Relief Act that introduced some new tax credits. 
Many of the benefits were for the middle to low income taxpayers, offering tax relief for parents, college students, investors, homeowners, small business owners, and retirees. A few of the reliefs in this tax act are still benefiting us today, such as the child tax credit and the Roth IRA. The child tax credit in 1997 was $400 per child under the age of 17, and today has increased to $2,000 per child. The Roth IRA benefit was that taxpayers could pay into the retirement account using after-tax dollars and withdraw with no taxes owed. In 2010, former President Barack Obama reformed health care with the Affordable Cares Act, which is more commonly referred to as Obamacare. This act extended health care insurance into Americans who were uninsured by making it legal requirement to have health insurance. To ensure that all Americans would be able to legally comply, Obama expanded the Medicaid eligibility, prevented insurance companies from denying coverage, and required plans to cover certain essential health benefits. If one did not obtain health insurance, then there would be a hefty tax to pay. One of the more recent tax acts was the Tax Cuts and Job Acts in 2017, introduced by former President Donald Trump. A few things that this act did was lower personal income tax rates at all levels except the lowest bracket. It raised the standard deduction to $24,000 for joint filers, $12,000 for single filers, and $18,000 for head of households. Also, repealed personal independent exemptions equaling $4,150 for each taxpayer, spouse, and eligible dependent, as well as got rid of the penalty for not obtaining health insurance from the Affordable Cares Act to $0, essentially getting rid of this requirement. For corporations, it reduced the income tax rate from 35% to 21%, and for general business tax, it extended 100% bonus depreciation until 2022. This tax act will remain in place until at least 2025. Thank you all for listening to our podcast today, and I hope that you all learned something new about our nation's history of tax.